How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and simple. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. In manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively. But not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by Bluebotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability. Because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. It is Thursday. We are back to normal services being resumed. We went in our holidays for the Christmas, but now we're back to two podcasts. Well, I'm still a trying week. to get my head going, to be perfectly honest with you. I can hear the, I can hear, there's a sort of a, you know, there should be WD-40 for the brain. You should stick it in your ear. <laughs> there is, it's called Guinness. <laughs> And then suddenly the, all the cogs start working and the machines start working. A bit working. of lubrication, that's what you need. He's always been to lube, that boy. Anyway, what's rocking your world, Sunshine? Well, I'll tell you what, Mac, I've been perplexed. Have you been perplexed? I've okay. been perplexed this week because what actually happens normally is during the, the week, with, there's a few articles that are, are shared amongst us. In prep but for don't our, be giving our, away all the state secrets here uh, now. I, I won't. <laughs> but anyway, there was this one that came in that... Mac sent me and I was reading it and then I read it again and, and then I tried to read it again and I was a little bit perplexed trying to this understand. This is the, the Mattin Khaled one. Exactly. So, and he's talking about the Goldilocks moment in yes. economics. But essentially what he's talking about is, you know, what's actually happening in the bond markets and the, the stock, stock markets and, and the, all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And then he's also talking about the job figures in the US and the wage growth figures and all, you know, and he's trying to describe what's going to happen in 2023 as a result of all of this and yeah. trying to look ahead. And I'm I'm looking at it going, I get all those little bits individually, but there are so many moving parts in all of this that I'm kind of going, John. how can you come to a conclusion <laughs> of what the hell's going to happen? If, if economics was easy, everyone would be doing it. <laughs> the problem is everyone is doing it, right? But most yeah. people don't have any idea what they're doing. That's down in Conway's they're That's doing like, it. They're doing it in every boozer. No, uh, just to give you a bit of background, what is happening right now, John, is there is a sort of a change in where people think the economy is going. So up until last week, there was a perception that what was happening was the following. Inflation was continuing to rise. Real interest rates, which is the difference between the nominal rate of interest, which is the one mm. you see like 5% or 6%, right? That minus the rate of inflation is the real interest rate. That's where the squeeze comes. Yeah. Now, what has been happening over the last many years is that the rate, even though interest rates are rising, 
real interest rates are still negative because the rate of inflation is higher, right? So then the question is, if central banks want to make real interest rates positive, they have to push up the rate of interest to maybe 10%, right? right? That's what was spooking everybody because the perception was inflation would continue to rise. Now, in the last couple of days, really, weeks or days, have been a slew of data that suggests that maybe this is not the case. So what has happened is you've had two things. One is the rate of inflation seems to be falling, which means the economy is not going to be hit by very high interest rates. Yeah. But more interestingly still, the rate of employment seems to be rising, which is inconsistent with the falling economy. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And on top of that, the rate of wage growth seems to be rather, rather stable. So all of this has changed the view in financial markets. And now they're saying it could be this Goldilocks economy, mm. which is the sweet spot where you want to be. It's not too hot, not too cold, right? So that the rate of inflation isn't too hot mm. and the rate of growth in the economy isn't too cold. So you could be just at this level. But in a few of our previous podcasts, we talked about the pendulum and the, the pendulum yep. swing going from profits to wages. Yep. So is this part of the swing and we're kind of halfway through? And we're that's kind of the, halfway through and the swing mightn't be that violent. Now, okay, that's right, what right. the perception is, right? Right. So then you've got to think, okay, well, how does, all, how does this affect the bond market? Mm. So imagine now, the bond market, the market for long-term assets, right? Long-term lending, okay? Now, the bond market moves in this bizarre situation that when the rate of inflation is rising, the bond market is falling, right? Now, if the rate of inflation is not rising as much as we think it is, yeah. the bond market will not fall as much as we think sure. it should, right? Yeah. So what we're seeing is suddenly there's been a rally in bond prices. That's the first thing in the last week. Yeah. The other thing is that typically, if the rate of interest is rising, the stock market should be falling, right? Mm -hmm. Because one part of how you value stocks is what they call discounted cash flows, right? But if the economy isn't falling as quick as we think it is, as evidenced by the fact that the rate of unemployment isn't falling, then the companies are selling into an economy that is going to be going faster than we think. So consequently, the downward pressure on stocks is being mitigated by the upward pressure on the growth rate. Right. So this is, it's all, this, there's a load of going in there, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you've got exchange rates and other things going on. Now, what is always most difficult to get is the big picture, Yeah. right? Because there are many, many moving parts. And most people only get a little bit of the big picture right, and sometimes that's enough, mm. right? But if you want to be what Matin is and to a degree, what I was and Vikas was years ago in the... Actually, Mateen, Khaled and Vikas went to college together in okay. Wharton, right? right? Many, many years ago. That's how I know Mateen, yeah. who is an expert on many things, as well as you might find, John, this will might tickle your... The extraordinary ability of traders from Muscat. You know Muscat, I do. right? <laughs> yes. They ran the entire trade of East Africa for years and years and years. And both Vikas and Mateen are experts so if you were right. if you're into if you're into Muscati traders from the Horn of Africa, 
They're your men. I feel a, a, a Thursday podcast Definitely on that coming out very there. subject. So, so but right now we're at a situation where there could be the case, and this is the gets us on to our next guest, mm. right? Because we're going to talk about crypto. That interest rates, the interest rate cycle might not be as dramatic as people feared. And therefore, the rate of increase increases that people expect next year might not come to pass. Now, that would change profoundly the perception of risk and risk assets in financial markets, number one. Mm. But number two, for people listening to the podcast who are worried about their mortgage, it affects how far their mortgage will increase. It yeah. affects their monthly payments. So it's all of a piece. You know, everything's related because yeah. as we've said, the rate of interest is the foundational price of financial markets. And financial markets can be as esoteric as with the bond market mm. or stock mm. markets are as grounded as your mortgage. And that's what links them all together. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> John's going back to school and he's not liking it. He's at this minute, he's actually got tonsillitis. It's Monday morning. I've got more Ecker to do. He's got more Ecker to do. But look, the whole podcast is about Ecker. But when we finished at the at the end of Tuesday's podcast, yes. we spoke about how these interest rates falling, perhaps if they fall, and perhaps there might be cheaper money yep. in 23 and how that might affect Everything. Everything, but including crypto. Right. So let's talk crypto. Before we get there, when we started this podcast nearly three years ago, yeah, we did a couple of episodes on crypto. And one of the things that you did say at the time was, I'm not sure about crypto. Let's have a look at it. And over that time, we have been looking at it. You, I know you've been studying, which, writing your, your book and all the rest. And you have come out going, it's a Ponzi scheme. Well, thank you, John. Uh, no, I think what I always said at the start was, I can tell you about one thing about crypto. It's definitely not money. Yes. That's what I always said. Yeah. Right? But it's a speculative asset. Mm. And if you're into gambling, go for it. Right? But it is not money. What has happened now is that because it's not money, people then continue to ask, well, what the hell is it? Yeah. And... What I always thought was this is just one of those crazy moments, market manias that happens when interest rates are extremely low. Mm. And I think that's come to pass. And I think it's really dangerous. But why don't we talk to a man who called it and invested a huge amount of time in calling it? And I think actually had bizarrely debt threats because he called it. Really? Because, well, crypto, there's part of crypto that was a cult. You know, and it's, it's, it's like you're going against the religion, yeah. right? His name is Stephen Deal. Now, Stephen Deal, to put it succinctly, lives and understands the intersection of technology and finance right. and economics. Okay. And I think what has actually been absent in this discussion is that the technologists don't know enough about finance. And the finance guys didn't know enough about technology. And taking together, that is a massive ignorance at the center of the crypto boom and bust story. So that's Stephen's maybe comparative advantage is that he can see both sides of the thing. Mm, so let's go to London. Them more. Let's, well, exactly. <laughs> let's go to London and talk to Stephen Deal. Now, obviously, obviously, one of the biggest stories in 
2022 and into 2023 has been the collapse, the elimination, the pricking of the bubble that was cryptocurrencies. This has been as precipitous a fall and as dramatic a reversal as anything I've seen in a long, time, long, long time in financial markets. Now, it's always difficult to go against the grain. It is always difficult to be the guy who says, you see the emperor? I suspect he doesn't have any clothes on. I suspect he is actually showing his langer. <laughs> and everybody else says, oh, no, he's not showing his langer, right? And one man who did this, one man who did this a long time ago and came upon my radar screen last year, maybe actually in 2021, is Stephen Deal. He has been at the Dorky Book Festival and Kilconomics. He has written a book about the popping of the crypto bubble. He, and it takes a lot of bravery, at a time when the herd is going one way, said, hold on a second, this is a scam. Crypto is a scam. Stephen is on the line from London. Stephen, how are you? Good to see you. Hi, David. Lovely to be here today. Stephen, tell me now, you are a techie guy, right? You started as a tech guy. You studied physics in the States. You started working on the tech side. What was it? I want to get on to crypto in a second, but what was it about crypto that you thought about five years ago? Hold on a second. This is a grift. This is a scam. What, what did you see that somebody else didn't see? Yeah, so my background is I've been working in the software industry for about 15 years now, usually kind of at the intersection of technology and financial services. So I happen to have this sort of weird confluence of knowledge where I understand enough about financial markets, about economics, and about the software itself. And crypto happens to be at the weird center of all three of these different domains. And at least in my profession, um, crypto is sort of this sort of crackpot fringe thing that's been existing for about 10 years now. And it didn't really gain much prominence until around, like, say, oh, 2016 era, where I started to see what was happening here and seeing a lot of parallels between other financial catastrophes that had happened in the past. And uh, I started writing what I thought was the sort of internal consensus in the industry that was vastly different than what I was hearing from what I would consider the mainstream media about like what crypto was, because it's very difficult to actually understand this phenomenon. It's very, very strange. And since then, I've been sort of the go-to person, at least in the European press, to kind of get the contrarian perspective on crypto and sort of speak power to uh, what seems like a set of incoherent narratives that's been pushed on the public for last year and resulted in, well, the scandals and meltdown we saw last year. So you saw it mainly from a technology side. Why from the technology side? That's what I want to understand. Did you think? Because a lot of very gullible people, it's like all these boom busts. You go all the way back to the South Sea bubble. You can do, take it wherever you want, right? It tends typically to be people who half understand something, are too self-absorbed to admit they don't understand, and then say, well, if you don't get it, you don't understand how complicated this is. But if you just got how complicated it was, you'd see the light. As a tech guy, looking at the back end of crypto, looking at blockchain, looking at all these extraordinary assertions that were made about how this is going to change the world, what did you see? Well, as a technologist, I can look at the code and I can see what these people are claiming it does. And it clearly does not do the things that people claim it does. But the sort of weird paradox around crypto is that since it's a financial technology, you have the financial people who look at it and say, maybe there's something on the software I don't understand. And then you have the finance people or the technologists look and say, maybe there's something on the finance that I just don't understand. And it requires a very weird set of knowledge to kind of really piece together that maybe there actually is no there there to any of this. And if you look at what the aspirations of this actual thing are, they're largely about building a new form of private money or to create like sort of purely 
speculative assets untethered to anything in the real economy. And both of those projects sort of rest on or predicated upon some really dubious assumptions on both the technology and on the finance. And you really have to unpeel all of these really obfuscatory narratives around the technology and really to understand and get what's under it. And what's under it looks like a lot of hot air and hype. And the hot, but the hot air and hype grabbed a lot of people. And again, I am never, because I've seen what happens when people's real wealth is eliminated and destroyed by grifters, right? And yeah. a grifter is an American expression for a bullshitter, okay? But a bullshitter who takes your money and actually disappears. You have called this era, this last five years, the era of grifters. How do you mean? Well, in crypto, you have sort of two different eras. The original Bitcoin white paper back in 2008 was largely a sort of political project that believed in essentially the separation of money and state. And that's a very political project in sure. its construction. And those people actually had sincere beliefs about this new financial system they thought they were building that was going to be independent from you know, government debasement of the currency. And they had very sort of Austrian economics perspectives on monetary policy. That more or less sort of faded out around the 2016 era when the people involved in crypto largely became your typical financiers, your Wall Street guys, your hedge funds, and their interests are not really necessarily to undermine the existence of the state. They just want to make a lot of money. And they saw a market that was like deeply liquid, deeply inefficient, in which there were a lot of fools involved. And largely it was retail fools. And since that era, they've been creating all of these new bespoke cryptocurrencies left and right. And almost all of them are fraudulent in nature. They exist to basically use the public as exit liquidity for a small pool of insiders to enrich themselves. And this is what I call the grifter era. And this is largely proceeded from the 2016 era on until about now. And Sandek and Freed, uh, was probably the epitome of this grifter era. Yeah, no, I've always thought this, you know, when I, when I saw this years ago, the crypto stuff and this podcast has been extremely, not even cautious, uh, just calling bullshit on it. Because if you've studied a wee bit of monetary economics or a bit of monetary history, you've seen this stuff become before. I mean, I've always thought that crypto is the Andrew Tate of money, right? This is what we're talking about. And just put that, get that image in your head. I right? like that, Mark. I like that. You've got, to, yeah, John, you've got to get the image in your head, right? You know, yeah. that, that sort of stuff. But I, I, Stephen, I want to come back to you. You said, and this is a quote from a, an interview you had in the Financial Times a couple of months back. You said, after 18 years, it is still a solution in search of a problem. It is not building a new financial system. It is not building a new internet. It is not an asset uncorrelated with the market. It is not a hedge against inflation. It is a vehicle for pure, naked speculation, detached from anything in the economy. It is a casino that's wrapped in all of these lies. And when you tear back those lies, what's left looks like a net negative for the world. That's pretty damning stuff. I don't mince words. Absolutely. No, but tell me now, there are people who will be listening to the show now and they'll say, okay, Sam Bankman-Fried, I see see he's actually swapped his baggy pants for a suit. We have a joke here, which is, what do you call a crypto guy in a suit? The accused, because they've abandoned (laughs) all those baggy pants and fucking baseball hats and, hey, you know, tech bro shit. And he's now in a Brooks Brothers suit looking very scared. But Stephen, I'm asking, you know, the difference between Bitcoin and crypto, because online, on Twitter, if I ever say something about crypto, all these accounts come back to me with fellas with little red eyes. Don't know what that moniker is, but it's something about crypto. They say, Bitcoin is not crypto. Explain to me what you think of Bitcoin. 
Well, this is one of those narratives that goes into the crypto space where people like to allegedly differentiate between Bitcoin, which is the first crypto asset, and the ones that followed after. And from first principles, there is some truth what they're saying. Like it was the first one, except there's not a meaningful distinction between Bitcoin and the rest of these crypto assets in any kind of meaningful financial sense. Um, they are all at best purely narrative driven income-free, highly speculative assets trade on the greater fool theory. They have no underlying cash flows. They have no intrinsic value <laughs> and they have no fundamentals. And this is true for all of crypto. So yes, Bitcoin is the first one of those things, but it's not meaningfully different in any way. I mean, until it represents a legal claim on some sort of future cash flows or pays a coupon or has a legal claim on some underlying assets, um, its fundamental value should be precisely zero. So. Bitcoin is not meaningfully distinct from the rest of the cryptocurrency system because all of it is completely fundamentalist. Now, it's interesting. You talk about narrative because it's all, I mean, during a boom, the person with the best story wins for a while, for a while. And the person who believes the best story wins for a while until the story hits basic ideas. Does it have a cash flow? Is there an income? Is there an investment strategy? Am I buying anything real? What am I actually buying here? So let me ask you about Bitcoin. It's been, it's been hovering around $15,000, which in itself is a, a momentous amount of money. Why doesn't it go to zero if it's all narrative-based? Well, there's no fundamental reason it should have value $15,000. Um, there's no fundamental reason it should have any value in particular. I would chalk it up to the fact that markets are not always rational. We've seen this validity of capitalism throughout, you know, since the South Sea bubble, when people you know, start trading things completely untethered to their fundamentals. And it's basically just a more surreal form of tulip mania for the internet era. And I don't see any fundamental reason why Bitcoin should have any particular value because it doesn't represent a claim on anything. It is not really an investment in any meaningful sense. It's a pure speculative vehicle for you know, basically gambling, how many other people are going to be involved with this get-rich-quick scheme. And, you know, if that's your cup of tea, then okay. But then there's certainly a certain amount of capital in the world that will chase this as a pure gambling exercise. And that can explain a lot of it. Also, its ability to be used in sort of crime, um, sanctions evasion, also generates a certain amount of demand for it. Uh, but those things are generally a net negative for the world. And there's, I mean, it's on a random walk to zero, by a path that none of us can actually predict. But fundamentally, if you believe in the efficiency of markets, it shouldn't, should eventually end up at zero at some point. <laughs> now, Stephen, can I ask you about something else, which is the demography? Because it strikes me that this has really gripped people under the age of 40 around the world, usually, usually men, usually under the age of 40. And that also coincides with some big demographic, political, economic, social forces that are at work one of which is that, and that's your generation, Steve, one of which is that your generation has been locked out of the wealth generative side of the housing market. So people in my generation bought their houses, sat in their houses, they went up and to a degree, and you'll hear many people in my generation say, well, this is my pension. So that's number one. Your generation is locked out of that. Number two, in the jobs market, there's a much more fluidity of jobs. There's a more of a, what they call the precariat, people on a slightly precarious existence. And number three, there's a sort of an anti-establishment feeling of like, screw you, you guys destroyed our future by bailing out banks, by destroying the world in 2008. You guys didn't pay for it properly. And consequently, 
we are anti-establishment. We are anti-globalist. We are looking after ourselves. We want to create wealth. This was our time. This was our opportunity. Can you understand in a way, because you've kind of deconstructed it from the intellectual, the financial, the economic side. Can you understand how so many young men got involved in this? Because I know in the Irish case, there's some data. Now, always data is always, you know, you know, every, every, as I always say, every statistic has an agenda, right? But in the Irish case, I read something that about half a million people were exposed in some way in this country to some form of crypto. Can you understand why that happened? Absolutely. I think you have to have a certain empathy for these people because in a lot of situations, they were doing this as an act of desperation because the macro environment that they find themselves in, particularly in my generation, is genuinely quite challenging to navigate. When I was at Economics in Ireland, um, I was taking a cab from Dublin Airport uh, to, the, to the conference and I was talking to the cab driver and he was telling me um, about how he had dumped, I think, 20,000 euros into a crypto asset and had lost everything in the collapse. Uh, and we got to talking about this because I was telling him I was going to speak at this conference and talk about crypto. And, you know, he explains his rationale to me. It's like, okay, this is a lottery ticket. And quite frankly, if I put everything in an index fund, you know, I'm maybe going to get 8% a year for, you know, the next, you know, 10 years. That's not enough for me to ever buy a flat in this country. And a lot of People in my generation have been completely shut out of the housing market and they don't really have a mechanism to generate wealth. So what they're looking for is like assets which have an extreme amount of risk and a possibility of a parabolic upside. And in some ways, that's extremely economically rational. The only problem is that the underlying thing that they're investing in fundamentally just pays out old investors from new investors. It has precisely the same economics as a policy scheme. And so money will slosh around, but no actual wealth is actually being created in the system. It's pure zero sum. Any money that one person makes off of crypto is ultimately money that somebody else has lost. So on a net aggregate for society, this is just shifting money from different hands to other hands. And spoiler alert, mostly the hands that it's shifting into are people that are in the technology industry or are wealthy financiers already. And so from a pure macro perspective, crypto looks like a wealth transfer from generally the working class to the already wealthy, <laughs> people that can manipulate the markets without the capital to launch these projects and to create sort of predatory investments that prey on the poor. And that's why I have a lot of problems with crypto. So I fully understand the kind of cultural context in which the things exist, and that's very real. The desperation that people feel in the cost of living crisis and with inflation hitting these days should not be underestimated. And also the distrust of institutions out of 2008 is also a very real phenomenon that crypto yeah, has sort of latched onto. Absolutely. I don't want to understate that. No, but what you're but, saying is that ethically, there were warning signs on your ethical horizon, as well as just your technological ability and, and financial ability. You're saying ethically, hold on, this looks to me like a transfer of wealth from poor young guys to rich old guys. Yeah. Wow. John, you were going to come in? Stephen, can I just ask you, just from um, a technology perspective, I know you're saying that there's no intrinsic value in, in Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in themselves, but the technology behind it, the blockchain, you know, that's one of the other narratives we hear all the time about how valuable blockchain is. And even if cryptocurrencies collapsed and disappeared tomorrow, blockchain, the base technology would still survive and would be, that's where the value actually is. Can you just explain a little bit more to me about that technology itself? And does it have the value that people are talking about? So blockchain, the so-called underlying technology, is one of these memes. And it's largely part of the crypto narrative. 
blockchain is effectively a very slow database that can be shared between different participants um, in a trustless way. That's an interesting thing. It just doesn't have many direct applications. Blockchains have been around for, oh, 40 plus years in computer science. They're not a panacea for very much. Um, they have some very, very, very limited applications, but it's really only since crypto assets came about in 2008 that there's actually been any kind of interest in this stuff. And people have been trying to apply blockchains everywhere in financial services, to logistics, to accounting, to supply chain management. And there are shockingly few success stories around actually using wow. blockchain in these applications. The Australian Stock Exchange did a big project for almost eight years to try to rework their back office clearing system using blockchain technology. They spent $150 million. They lit it all on fire. The entire project went nowhere. So blockchain is a technology. There's almost always a better solution, which is usually just a very traditional form of a database. And you know, I'll use the phrase, the proof is in the pudding. Nobody's really been able to come up with much in the way of applications for this technology after 40 years. Then, you know, maybe it's just this quirky thing we should probably ignore. Yeah. And also I would say that I mean blockchains, that it's a talistic technology which has been around for many thousands of years, not 40, 40 years in computing, but thousands of years in the real world. It's in effect a clearinghouse. That's all it is. And if the clearinghouse works and the original clearinghouse is working, well, then you have to have some bizarre conspiratorial view of the whole world in order to say that blockchain is better than what exists at the moment. And I think that's part of the story. But it's the last piece of bullshit that is hanging from this. Story. Yeah, but it's supposed to be fraud proof and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but, but it's not. I mean, uh, <laughs> you just have Sam Bankman-Fried. I mean, the biggest frauds have just been yeah, perpetrated yeah, in yeah, this yeah. fecking world. Yeah. This is the whole thing. Okay. Stephen, before you go, I just want to ask you one last thing. It's very, very clear that all this excitement about the new world and new money and the new future is a function of the credit cycle. Okay, And it's a function of the fact that money is very, very, very cheap. The cost of getting involved in this stuff and even the cost of losing this stuff is actually reasonably modest vis-a-vis -vis what would happen when the cost of money and the credit cycle turns. Now, I'm going to ask you before you go, do you think that if, for example, the rate of inflation worldwide is being overestimated and it begins to fall quickly, as a lot of the leading indicators would suggest it is, and the, the Feds and the European Central Bank and, and all that crowd decide, you know what, inflation is not a problem. We might even go back into a rate cutting cycle 24 months from now. Okay. I think that's probably highly likely, highly, highly likely. Do you think this creature, this creature which has been dead, this moribund, this kind of financial Frankenstein will reemerge if interest rates fall? I will quote Nassim Taleb from the conference they spoke to at Economics, and he referred to Bitcoin as a, a tumor of zero interest rate environment. <laughs> this kind of metastasized out of the cheap abundance of money, which has nowhere else to go. And you see this sort of cancer popping up in markets everywhere, like this, the everything bubble of the last couple of years. Crypto is largely the symptom of that. It just happens to be one of the most strange pathological instances of it because it's an investment that really has, there's no there there, there's no underlying. It's a pure naked speculation attached from anything in the real economy. It's really a race between if regulators can get their hands on the crypto bubble and a lot of the scams that have been propagated in the last year, or whether they can curtail it expanding in the next cycle. Because if interest rates go back down, there's no reason that there won't be a lot of more speculative cash sloshing around looking for some place to go. And that could go into crypto theoretically. And then we'd be back to exactly the same kind of cycle with the same new set of actors like Sam and a new set of institutions that will 
cascade and fail and we're not where we want to go as a society. <laughs> Stephen Deal, as always, it's been a pleasure and I'll talk to you very soon. So Stephen, thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Thanks, David. Cheers. That is one of the most interesting discussions on crypto we've had. But before we kind of just pick it apart a little bit, let's just pay a few bills. In euros, no cryptos. <laughs> there's loads to talk about there yeah. and I know we'll come back to it over over it's, it's a good different- one to kick off the first week or second week of January Absolutely. But let's just pick on just one or two little bits. Yeah. But one, one of them which I was really interested in, which is the very first time I heard it, was somebody dissing or questioning. Explaining. Explaining, even better, uh, blockchain. And I've said that before. My vague understanding of blockchain is like, even if the cryptocurrencies fall away, we'll still end up with blockchain and yeah. it'll give rise to other things. But he's saying, and I told no. You, and I told you were, you were wrong then too. You never listened to me, man. I never, never listened to, you, to me. I, I know, I know. No, I mean, look, blockchain, right, is a clearinghouse. All it is, is a ledger, mm. right, which records who bought what from who at what price. Okay. This is no great breakthrough. I've told you before, the Ishtango bone 15,000 years ago yes, yes. was a blockchain. The tally stick, which is the way in which the Brits, for many, many years, little stick with little nutches on mm. it, cleared trades. This is part of what we call the hocus pocus narrative of crypto, which is that crypto is a belief system more than an analytical Cambrian moment, let us say, Oof. where the whole world recalibrates into mm. something new. Right. Part of the belief system, I think what Stephen said very interesting is there was that most people don't understand writing code. Yeah. So they believe what they're told about writing code. And one of the beliefs that was foisted on the world was that blockchain is going to change everything. Now, I can see where it comes from because it's pure. Right. So if you believe in blockchain, you also have to believe that the world is profoundly corrupted that the banking yeah. system is profoundly corrupt, that your government that's is, you out, see is out to time. get you, yeah. is out to get you, that your money is going to be lost, that someone is going to rob you, etc. Mm. Now, mo- most of the ad- uh, 
the evidence is you're mainly robbed by the crypto people, right? Yeah, Which is indeed, okay. Yeah, yeah. So you have to start with the position of I don't trust the world, mm. and blockchain is the solution to my problem. Yeah. And I get that. Yeah. But it be- means that you're beginning your worldview from a perception that everyone is crooked, right? That everyone's out to screw you. That could be right. But if you look at the most extraordinary thing about markets is that the expression that your mother would have told you, honesty is the best policy, Mm. is actually true, right? Yeah. That markets don't work if you're dishonest. Like I can screw you over once, maybe twice, and then you wise up to it and you never do business with me again. So unless I'm, that's why reputation matters enormously in business, right? So for markets to work, reputations have to be intact. And for a reputation to be intact, trust has to be something, right? If your starting position is, I don't trust anyone, well, that's fine. But in actual fact, the reality is that we are unbelievably trusting on a day-to-day basis with our money, with our jobs, with our income, with everything. Mm. And the reality is, yeah, there are frauds. We've talked about frauds, but they're still unusual events. They're not the the main, main thing. So unless you believe, this is about the blockchain, mm. that the whole world is out to get you, and that you are paranoid, right? Mm. You simply don't believe in society. You don't believe in society, exactly, yeah. right? The blockchain is nothing. It's not a breakthrough at all. And if you take that pillar away from the crypto foundations, yeah. right? If you take so that foundation away from the crypto edifice, I mean, then what is there? Hot air, nothing more. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast, Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now.